Uh, if you have a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 13, please. John chapter 13, I want to attempt with you this morning answering the question, how loved are you? How loved are you? I don't know if you wrestle with the concept of love, if you feel unloved or unlovable, if even those who uh, love you find it difficult to penetrate a, uh, a calloused surface, perhaps, where it is difficult for you to feel love, even though you know you are receiving love. Um, this is something I've thought about quite a bit. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Do you ever wonder if the disciples who followed Jesus, the ones who were closest to him, if they knew that they were loved by Jesus? Do you ever wonder that? I think we just assume sometimes that uh, because it's Jesus and uh, and he loves perfectly, that the disciples always felt loved and just knew that he loved them. And in the middle of it all, um, you know, and, and, and all the confusion and all the teaching and all the ups and downs, uh, they just had a, a security in the knowledge of the love of Christ. And um, I wondered about that, and I began to wonder if, you know, if they're like us, or we're like them, I guess maybe we, you, you could say, surely they doubted at many points that Jesus actually loved them. So I went into the scriptures actually to look and see, where is it that Jesus says verbally, hey guys, I love you. And so I went looking through the four Gospels to see, where does Jesus say that he loves them? And so I checked, and Jesus never says to his followers in any of the four Gospels, any variation of the phrase, I love you, until verse 34 of this chapter. Um, it's, verse 34 is going to be somewhat outside of our focus text, but verse 34 of John chapter 13, where he says, love one another just as I have loved you. That's the first time that I could find that he verbally references his love for his disciples. Now, he talks about love quite a bit. He talks about loving God and God loving the world um, and people loving each other. Um, for instance, John chapter 3 is a very big love chapter and all of that sort of thing. But there's not a point until this chapter from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 13, verse 34, where we see something akin to, hey guys, I love you. So, being the weirdo that I am, I began to wonder if they ever wondered, and surely they had to wonder. Like you, you know, there was a day um, uh, uh, where Jesus called Peter the devil. Do you remember that? You don't think Jesus? Uh, you don't think Peter was up that night, like staring at the ceiling or the stars, wherever they're sleeping, thinking, "He called me the devil. Does he love me?" Because Jesus said, "Get behind me, Satan." <laughs> I think if I were Peter, I thought, he called me Satan. That's a pretty harsh thing to say. And then afterwards, we don't see a scene where Jesus says, hey, Peter, look, I know I called you the devil yesterday, but you know I love you, right? We, we don't see that. So I think they might have wondered. And I think maybe sometimes you wonder. Maybe not all of you. But maybe you wonder, given the circumstances of your life, given what has taken place in your background, maybe some things that you are anxious about into the future, you begin to wonder, does he really love me? Like theologically, I know you know this, we uh, are Christians predicated on the idea that God so loved the world, but sometimes, sometimes just in the frailty of us, in the uh, fallen humanity of us, and just in the circumstances of life, the the, the surety, the firmness, uh, the confidence that God loves us 
sometimes feels a little thin to us. It's not a problem with him, but it's a problem with us. Sometimes we wonder, does, does he really love me? Maybe here even this morning, um, I'm revealing something that has been in your heart. You've asked the questions. I've sat across the table from believers, from Christians who say, sometimes I feel like God's got it out for me. It's just one thing after another, and it, and it makes me wonder, does, the, does he really love me? Some of you perhaps believe that God loves you, but I'm convinced that most Christians haven't really even scratched the surface of seeing how expansive that love is because we typically settle for a kind of sweet little sentimental religious understanding of God's love, and we never really contemplate God's love as it is forged in the blazing fires of his holiness. So just how loved are you? Let's begin reading John chapter 13 and verse 1. We're going to go all the way to verse 11. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that's a narrative affirmation of his love, not a verbal. Okay. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and and thank our Heavenly Father for it. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you that out of your great love, you've given us this word, which is perfect, which is inspired by your Holy Spirit, which is inerrant and infallible and sufficient and living and active. Thank you, God, that you have not given us the silent treatment, left us to figure things out by our own ingenuity and cleverness, our own imagination, but have declared from your heavens, through the work of ordinary men, your deep love for us in your Son. Help us to see that in this passage. Help us to treasure it and be changed by it. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Now, what's fascinating about John chapter 13 is it kind of serves as a turning point for the storyline, if you will, of the entire gospel. Uh, In fact, John chapter 13, verse 1, marks the introduction to what we might say the rest of John's gospel. Jesus' focus has changed. Narratively, he's not so occupied with his public ministry of preaching and teaching and miracle working and all that sort of thing, as he is with sort of gathering his closest friends close to himself, tending to them, preparing them for his death, basically. Verse 1, he knew that his hour had come to depart from the world. So the urgency of the task that he has been on for the last three years of his public ministry is now coming to bear. 
and he's gathered with his closest friends for this meal. Now, scholars debate about what this meal in particular is, when it takes place in the chronology of the Passion Week, um, all those sorts of things. I, I sometimes think that's a little bit beside the point, right? The, the commentaries spill all kinds of ink trying to figure out if this is a pre-Passover meal or the Passover meal or where it fits in the, uh, in the evening rituals and all these sorts of things. I'm going to leave that stuff to the academics. Somebody's right. I don't know which one is. What's the most important thing is what's actually happening. That's, that's what I'm concerned about. <laughs> what are they doing? What are they saying? What does it mean? And, and w- what I see visually as I read the passage is that the shadow of the cross is looming large over these 13 men around this table. And the time has come for Jesus to drive home some really um, important points, some eternally important points. And we notice the most significant thing about what Jesus is doing in these final moments when he's really got to drive these points home. He doesn't get up at a pulpit or a lectern to preach. What does he do? He rolls up his sleeves and gets down on his hands and knees and washes their feet. Now, we think that's humble, and it is. We think that's um, sweet and special, and it is. But it's also, culturally speaking, extremely scandalous. What he's doing. Extremely provocative. To get to the scandal, you have to understand that in this culture, in that culture, washing someone's feet is seen as the most menial, dishonorable task there could ever be. In the ancient world, some Jewish theologians, in fact, um, argued that Jewish slaves shouldn't be required to wash feet. Only Gentile slaves. It is considered an act lower than low. Like today, we we would know it's kind of grody, but we don't get the cultural scandal. It's unseemly. Once I made the big mistake, um, before I moved to Kansas City, Missouri, to work at Midwestern Seminary, I pastored a church in Vermont for six years, and I decided I was going to be a little creative, and one Sunday morning, I preached my sermon while walking around the congregation and washing people's feet. Had a little basin, had a towel. Right now, you're getting really uncomfortable. Pastor David, don't get any ideas. I would never do it again, and as I was doing it, I thought, I immediately regret this decision. I should never know. But what happened was, I knew that's awkward, it's weird, and I called certain people ahead of time. Men, I didn't wash any ladies' feet, like that'd be really weird and awkward. I called men, as awkward as that would be, and said, hey, is it okay if I wash your feet? I'm trying to do something a little creative. I'm going to preach extemporaneously while I wash feet as an example of the sermon that I'm preaching. Every guy said yes, but you know what they did Sunday morning before they got to church? They made their, sure their feet were really clean. Their wives were probably like, what are you doing? Why, what are you putting cologne on your feet for? You know, because it's gross and grody. But the other thing I didn't do, I didn't tell the congregation that I had done that. So all that everyone else saw was me walking around picking people. They thought at random to wash feet. And so this, the, this discomfort, no one heard a word I said. Because all they could think of was, is he going to come to my, what am I going to do? So we know, you and I, like if I just started doing it right now, you guys would be so uncomfortable. It, you might even think it's unseemly or immo- or something. It's, it makes us uncomfortable. Back then, it's not just uncomfortable, it's culturally scandalous. It's not something that somebody that, it's not something a rabbi would do, for sure. This work that's even uh, too good for Jewish slaves. And in fact, we don't have an example. There's not an example in either Jewish or Gro- uh, 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 Greco-Roman sources uh, of the time of a superior washing the feet of an inferior, except John chapter 13. 
where it's not just a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It's God in the flesh washing the feet of sinners. The God of the universe on his hands and knees to do the job that even Jewish slaves are too good for. So, if they're wondering, am I really loved? Here's a very good indication, isn't it? How loved do you think you are? I want to help you. Let's help us, uh, uh, each other, keen in mainly on verse 1, where we have the narrative expression of the love, and then we're going to consult the rest of the passage for our context as we go. But verse 1 is where we see the fullness of Christ's love for his disciples at that moment, but also, but also at this moment, at this moment of our worship gathering. How loved are you? Well, first of all, you are loved from the very beginning. You are loved from the very beginning. That phrase in verse 1, having loved his own. Having loved. It is an English verb tense. It's a perfect progressive form, which means it's a past action that is being continued in the present. So what that tells us is this. um, Everything that Jesus has been doing has been out of love. He didn't decide at this meal, you know what, after everything, Peter, I've decided you're not the devil. I'm sorry I called you that. Uh, After after three years, guys, I really, I've waited all. I, I, I think I love you. No, that's not what's happening at all. Everything he's been doing all along has been out of the deep reservoir of the godness of himself. And we know that God himself is love. Therefore, everything Christ is doing is out of love for them. He'd been loving them. He's been loving you. You might wonder, you might doubt, you might question. When did he start loving you? Actually, the scriptures tell us he began loving you before time began. Sometimes we think we have this mistaken theological idea. God started loving me the moment I became a Christian. Or God started loving me the moment I became more serious about being a Christian. Or God started loving me the more I became more you know, theologically inclined. Or the more I cleaned up a certain area in my life. But that's not what the Bible testifies about when his love began for us. You know, I think one of the best practices that a lot of Christians could adopt is a regular rereading of Romans chapter 8. Maybe every day you could read Romans chapter 8, at least for a little while. I think it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. I know sometimes it's weird to put one chapter over another. The entire Bible is inspired and inerrant and infallible. Uh, But if I had to pick, if someone like said, you can only pick one chapter, I I would pick Romans chapter 8. If you often find yourself feeling a little lost or a little confused, a little hopeless or desperate, maybe the hurts are too heavy, the anxieties... Or you're kind of buckling under the weight of conviction of sin? Or just the ordinary pain of life? Read Romans chapter 8 again and again and again. And in Romans chapter 8, of of all the treasures we find, it's like a treasure chest, that chapter. And there's so many jewels in it. One of the the brightest jewels for me is in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, where we read something fascinating. This just blows my mind. It says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, I notice that it doesn't say for what he foreknew. It says for those he foreknew. So it's not as if he looked through time and saw your good works and thought, well, that looks like a good apple. I'll pick that one. I mean, just looking at Jesus' ministry with his disciples, does it appear that he has picked the A-team? The cream of the crop? 
these guys are always ten steps behind. The things Jesus says that are metaphorical, they think are literal. The things he says are literal, they think are metaphorical. They're always confused. He's always rebuking them. You would think at some point he would find another set. <laughs> Look, I mean, I gave, like, like, like at least midway through, we're going to do, you know, the progress reports. <laughs> like, guys, I, I really, I, I messed up. I thought you were a little further along. No, he knew exactly who he was calling. He knew them before there was of them. These are the guys you wanted. So think about that in relation to yourself. Do you think the Lord chose you because of your goodness, because of your cleanness, because of your holiness? No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And according to Romans chapter 8, he knew us before we were even us and were able to sin. He saw all of it coming. He looked through time, saw you, and decided that he wanted you. Knowing everything. Knowing everything. Christ loved you from the beginning. I don't know if you ever think about that. Knowing everything. He loved you. Several years ago, um, multiple years ago, probably over a decade ago, there was a little art, artsy movie that came out independent movie called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I'm not going to ask if anyone has seen it, because every time I ask that question, no hands are raised. So I'm just going to assume you have no idea what I'm talking about, and I'm going to tell you about the movie. You've seen it? One guy. Okay. Well, you, oh, never mind. All right. Probably like, we watched it as a church. No, no, you probably need to. <laughs> Don't watch it as a church, Pastor David. Yeah. But the, the premise of the movie, and it's made by sinners, and it's made for sinners, and, but sometimes a little bit of common grace peek into some arts, right? Because we're made in the image of God, and we, it's just hard to suppress some of the things that the Lord has embedded in us, even among people who don't know Jesus. And there's a little picture of grace in this movie. You don't have to go see it. I'll give you the plot and spoil it for you, so you don't have to do that. It starts like it's kind of romantic movies kind of do. It's two strangers. They're played by Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, and they see each other, and they fall in love, which is what happens in these romantic movies. And they develop a you know, relationship, and they go on dates, and they go on long walks on the beach, and all, just all the stuff you do in romantic deals. And then, of course, it gets realistic. They have a conflict, and not only are they in conflict, they decide that they hate each other, and they hate each other so much they never want to see each other again. And so it's kind of like other romantic comedies where there's a conflict that breaks them up. But in this one, it's just so bad that they are, are, are so um, such an animosity with each other, they don't even want to know the other person existed. Well, it just so happens this movie takes place in a universe where you can go to a company, it's kind of science fiction-y, and have your memories erased. And so that's what they do. They go to this company and they have the memory of each other. That's how much they hate each other. They have their memories. I don't even want to remember you even existed. And they had it sucked out of their brains. And then they go about their ordinary lives. And one day they see each other. They have no idea who each other are. But what do you think happens? They fall in love. And the people that work for the science fiction company, they've been trailing. Like they track all of their subjects. So they know because there's things that can complicate the procedure. And this is one of them. You can't let these people come back together. And as they investigate, they, these people get wind. Why are people following us? Why are this, you know, these things going on? And they investigate it themselves, and what they discover is that they used to know each other, and they hated each other so much, they wanted to have their memories erased. And in the process of that, you list, you, you, you uh, confess all the things that, about the other person that you just absolutely hate, and why you don't want to remember them anymore. And it's all recorded, and they get a hold of these recordings. 
Now they have the recordings of their former selves talking about this person that they think they're in love with. And they listen to the recordings. And in the end, again, secular movie, secular themes, but in the end, knowing everything, I used to know you and I hated you so much, I wanted to forget you even existed. Faced with the prospect of love, knowing everything, they decide what? To give it another go. It's a beautiful little picture, actually. And there's kind of a biblical precedent for it. The makers of this movie didn't know that probably, but think of the prophet Hosea. The Lord commands Hosea to marry a prostitute. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity. Why would God command Hosea to do such a thing? Well, I mean, he, he, he's creating through the prophet a real-world illustration of his own commitment to Israel. And as you keep reading in Hosea, you see God is rebuking the spiritual adultery of his people. They've gone after other gods. They make repeated commitments to disobedience. They don't commit wholeheartedly to the one true God, Yahweh. God has covenanted with them. He's made a commitment to them, but they are every single day cheating on him effectively and this is in turn for us a picture of christ and his bride the church he declares us righteous spotless clothed in his perfection but doing so is an immense outpouring of grace because every day you and i decide in some ways little and in some ways big to cheat on him with other things that we think will satisfy us Something else will validate us, fulfill us, give us meaning, give us purpose, or just give us a little bit of joy. I mean, that's what sin is. If you still sin every day, if you're alive, you still do. If you're a believer, you still sin every day. Every act of sin is an act of worship of something other than God. We're essentially saying, you don't satisfy me right now. This is what satisfies me right now. Whether it's trying to get back at someone because I think vengeance is mine and I need appeasement. Or it's greediness, because money satisfies me, not you. Or lust, or gossip. Whatever it is, whatever the sin is, in that moment, we are deciding, this is what fulfills me, this is what validates me, not you. You sit tight while I engage in this, and I'll get back to you. So every day we are committing in some itty-bitty way sometimes, spiritual adultery. Cheating on the God who alone satisfies and validates and justifies us. Every day we drift into decisions of the flesh and we fail to give Him all that He's due. And yet, He never leaves. There's not a day where He says, you know what, I thought you were better than this. When I chose you, I was expecting you to become sinless by year four. That's it. I've had it up to here. He never says it. That's amazing. That is amazing. He has committed himself from the beginning to people he knows are going to cheat on him. You and I wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. None of us standing at the altar with our spouse-to-be and being able to see into the future and know in five years this husband, this wife is going to have an affair. If you knew that, if you knew it, 
that they would be inclined to do that, you wouldn't marry them. The reason you marry someone is you, you, you trust them. You think the best of them. You love them. And love means believing all things and hoping all things. You don't marry people you think will be adulterers. And yet, many of us marry adulterers, don't we? Or we ourselves. You don't stand at the altar and see into the future and say, in four years, this person's going to give up and stop paying me any attention. In six years, this man is going to become engaged in pornography and he's going to turn cold to me. In ten years, this wife is going to cheat on me with my best friend. If, if, we, if you knew that, you wouldn't stay up, up front and say, I do. You say, I do, because you don't think that they're that kind of person. Those things happen, of course, in our lives, but we never think they'll happen to us, or we never expect that they will, which is why we say cheerfully in the moment, I do. But Jesus sees everything. He stands at the altar with us, and He sees right through the veil, He sees right through our fig leaves, He sees it all, every doubt, every mistake, every sin, every choice over a lifetime in which we say, you don't satisfy me, Jesus. This is what will satisfy me right now. And ask, do you take this sinner to be yours? He says, I do. John 13, 1's having loved is the commitment that Christ makes from the beginning that he will never leave or forsake you. That there's nothing you can do to get rid of him. Having loved you, he's going to keep on loving you. The kind of love Christ has for his bride is the kind of love that has seen it all and isn't going anywhere. You are loved, so loved from the beginning. But secondly, you're loved right now. You are loved right now. John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world who were in the world. Do you you know, fellow believers, He's not waiting for a better version of you to appear. He hasn't doled out, like, I'll give you a little bit of love. When you increase to Christian level 4, I'll give you a bit more. That's not how it works. Good news. Jesus loves the real you. Not the pretend you that you want everybody to think that you are. He's not fooled by that. Other people might, you know, might be fooled by that, but he isn't fooled by that. He's not phased by that. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you have found yourself or chosen to go, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. He loved his own who were in the world. What does this mean? This means that right in the thick of their confusion and their doubts and their sins, Jesus was loving them. He wasn't holding out on them. The love of Christ is not a probationary kind of love. He's not presenting you with some kind of contract, like, okay, if you just clean up areas X, Y, and Z in your life, then you can have some of my love. No, he gives himself fully and freely to the real you. The the real you, the you inside of you, the you that you try to protect, the you that you try to hide or hope that nobody sees or knows, that's the you that God loves. No, he doesn't love your sin, of course, but your true self, the sinner, without pretense, without facade, without image management, without the religious makeup, you the sinner, you the idolater, you the worshiper of false gods, 
That's the you that Jesus loves. Now, it makes us really uncomfortable sometimes to say that, but that's the whole point of the Christian message. If we lose that, we lose Christianity. You can get God loves people who clean themselves up in any other religion. Every other religion posits that, get religious enough, and then God will save you. Only Christianity says, you you can't be religious enough. How unholy do you think God is that you think you can achieve the holiness that would merit his salvation? He really is that holy. You will always fall short of his glory. He's got to save you, despite your inability, if you're going to be saved. This is the whole point of the Christian message. God loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our acts together. He knew that we never could. While we were still weak, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. And if this is true, by the way, this is true, we can finally be our true selves. We don't have to pretend anymore. In fact, to the extent that we pretend, that's the the extent to which we disbelieve the gospel. I think this is what Martin Luther meant. I don't know if you're a devotee of some of Martin Luther's writings, but one of the trickier, he said a lot of tricky things, a lot of things you end up having to apologize for or say like, ah, he didn't really mean that, and usually he did, you know, you kind of defend it. But there's one thing that he said that, that um, is kind of a famous quote where he said, sin boldly. Anyone, <laughs> anyone read that, Martin Luther? Sin boldly. He's, and people are like, wow, what is he talking about? Why would he say that? Well, he was speaking, it was a, it was a part of a letter, and in context, it makes it, it doesn't make the quote advisable. I wouldn't have put it that way, but I'm not Martin Luther, I guess. We're still reading him 600 years later, so I don't know. In any event, in the context and to the person who was writing to, who was a very timid soul, who struggled with the idea that God might love him, Luther's writing back to say, look, the love of God is not contingent on your performance. Luther was not in context saying, go on sinning, just go ahead and sin. He's not preaching an antinomianism there. What he was saying is, is essentially this. Because the good news is true, we can actually admit that we're sinners. If the good news isn't true, then yeah, we would certainly try to hide our sin. We would certainly get in those bushes and cover ourselves up with fig leaves. If the good news isn't true. But if the good news is true, then we can freely confess. Because there is security to be found in the great forgiver. We can boldly confess that we are sinners. And here's where a warning comes in to the text, actually, and the narrative expanded beyond verse 1. It comes with the way of understanding the true gospel. There's a warning here. Because, because to say that Christ loves you right now, just as you are, is not to say that his love shouldn't or doesn't change you. It doesn't mean that he means for us to stay exactly as we are. You cannot clean yourself up for Jesus, but knowing the love of Jesus does have a cleansing effect. If you believe in justification and the power of God, then you must believe in sanctification. In fact, we see in the scriptures, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
So to know this whole love, you must present your whole self, your whole sin to him. So Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet. Verse 6, Lord, you're going to wash my feet. I'm picturing Peter as an Italian. I don't know why, but get out of here. Forget about it. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him. And this is like, I don't sense any exasperation in the words of Jesus, but he could have said this in almost every chapter of the Gospels. What I'm doing, you don't understand. (laughs) Because they really don't. But he says, what I'm doing, you don't realize now. Afterward, you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter says. And it seems humble. It seems humble. But there's some self-righteousness here, I'm convinced. Why? Well, this is why I say that. Because to submit to washing means acknowledging that you aren't clean. And some people seem completely unable to do that. To admit, I need to be cleansed. We still think of ourselves as good enough. And Jesus replies, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And something seems to click for for Simon Peter. Verse 9, not only my feet, give me a bath, I'm binding my hands and my head. Brothers and sisters, the love of Jesus is not something to dabble in. The atoning work of Christ isn't something you have a little bit of. Please never think of Christianity as something you can just get your feet wet in. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, verse 10, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. He's completely clean. You're clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said not all of you are clean. And he's talking about Judas, of course. And what's really chilling about this scene, at least to me, is that we, Judas is at the table. At the scene of love. At this very scene of the humbly, the great humbling of the God of the universe in the flesh, washing feet like a, a not even a common servant, but the lowest kind of servant. He's at this scene of great love. But he's not washed, at least not in the way that counts. Maybe Jesus even washed his feet. And it apparently means nothing to him. He doesn't see the advantage in it. Judas has committed to his own way. He's only kind of a hanger-on when it comes to the love of Jesus. He's interested in the benefits, but not the cost. That's how you know if your Christianity is real. You're you're willing to embrace the cost. You're not just in it for the benefits, whatever they may be. Roger Fredrickson says, Judas has removed himself from the sphere of Christ's love by becoming the tool of the devil's hatred. This is how John puts it back in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And here's Judas sitting at the table, getting his feet washed, and he's not an inch closer to salvation. I pray that's not you this morning. Do you just come to church to get a little bit of religion in your life? Get a little bit of Jesus for your week, a little spiritual pick-me-up. 
Are you willing to let Jesus wash your feet, right? Get a little theology here and there, read a couple of books, go to church, sing some songs, play along with the religious thing for a little while, but you're not willing to put your whole body into it. Are you refusing to give Jesus your whole self? If you want his love, you can have it, but there's no halfway about it. He wants all of you. If you want part with me, I must wash you. Many condemned people suffer from a little gospel. And you can have a little faith. Jesus said you could. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed. But you cannot be saved by a little gospel. A halfway gospel, a, 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 a just get your feet wet gospel. Don't just get your feet wet in God's grace. Jump all the way in. Don't be like Judas. And to those who are willing to offer their broken self to Jesus, what you find is that His love is waiting for you right now, this very moment. No delays, no hesitations, no reluctance. Right now, right here, whatever your circumstance, whatever your background, whatever your fears, whatever your doubts, whatever your sins, His love is for those who are in the world right now, in the thick of it. You can be in the sphere of His love this very moment. Repent and believe in Him. He will not withhold himself from you. To those who are suffering, he is sanctifying. To those who are doubting, he is delivering. To those who are hurting, he is comforting. To those who are dying, he is holding. To those who are sinning, he is advocating. He will never let you go from his love. You who are in the midst of this painful, broken world and a painful, broken life, he loves you. He loves you. And while we're not perfect, His love is, and He will never stop. You are loved from the beginning. You are loved right now. And thirdly and finally, you are loved, you guessed it, forever. You're loved forever. Having loved His own who were in the world, verse 1, He loved them to the end. John Knox's translation says, He gave them the uttermost proof of His love. And the immediate referent here, of course, is to the cross. I think this is what John is referring to in verse 1. By the hour for him to come to depart from the world. That makes the most sense of that. He loved his own who were in the world so much, he's willing to go all the way to the end of his mission to die on the cross for sinners. If you think your sins aren't that big of a deal, all you need to do is look at the bloody cross where Christ was nailed for them. And there where you see the wrath of God poured out for sin, see at the same time the great, immeasurable, vast, eternal love of God poured out for sinners. For that is what the cross is. The intersection of God's love and wrath. He is a holy God who must punish sin. And He is a loving God who wants to save sinners. The washing that Jesus is doing is in fact in this moment a picture of this One commentator notes that even the phrase that's translated in verse 4, he laid aside, is the same translated elsewhere in the context of laying aside his life or laying down his life. How loved are you? You're loved all the way to the cross. Four chapters later in what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer, quite often, he, he slumped down in spiritual anguish there. And the cross is even closer now. 
He's, he's feeling the weight more heavily in anticipation, in the right kind of angst. There is a moment before his betrayal and his arrest and his torture where the weight is so heavy on him, he's sweating blood. What is he doing? He's carrying our sin already. He's buckling under the weight of our disobedience. And in that high priestly prayer, we see a few things. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples, his immediate followers, those his, his friends. Who, by the way, in the midst of all of this stuff, his greatest moment of need, after he has done this great moment of humility, they're napping while he is in agony. And he carries on. But after he prays for his friends in that moment, he prays, it says, for those who will believe. In essence, he's praying for all believers. Like you and me. And so I want to believe, this is just my imagination, it's not there in the text, but it's because it says he's praying for all who will believe who are to come. I want to believe that in the space-time economy of the omnipresent incarnate mind of our Lord, somehow, every, uh, however long that prayer was, but in the confines linearly of that prayer, every name, face, history of every believer who would ever live flashed through his mind. And in that garden, as he's preparing to take your sin to the cross to finally do away with it forever as far as God's judgment is concerned, he was praying, Father, take care of Jared. I'm doing this for him. And he's just seeing everything about me. And Because the, the cross is not a forgiveness of sins ideologically or idealistically. He's dying for people. For you and me. And so he's praying things like, Father, bless David. I'm doing this for him. Father, be with Dan. I'm doing this for him. Father, give comfort to Janice. Father, protect Lucy over and over and over again. He says in that prayer, I am in them, he says to the Father, and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's staggering. That the Father would love us as he loves his own Son. And then Jesus took you to the cross with him. Paul Tripp says, Jesus didn't purchase savability. He took names to the cross. Paul, Galatians, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He loved you to the end of his life. He didn't shrink back for a moment. But of course he doesn't stay dead. He rose again. And while your sin stays in the grave, his love for you doesn't. It reigns and rules because he reigns and rules. Because of Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, you are loved from the beginning all the way to the end for all eternity. Romans chapter 8 tells us, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The expression translated here, to the end, RVG Tasker says, could very well be translated completely. He loved them completely. He loves you completely. Your love from the beginning, you are loved now, you are loved forever. Now, I quoted Martin Luther earlier. He's, made, he's probably my favorite reformer. Of course, he's the most famous one, so it's cliche to pick that. But I'll tell you why I like Martin Luther. Because the more you dig into his, his life, especially before conversion, but even after, this is a guy who struggled with the love of God. He firmly believed that his uh, status before God was based on his performance. And because he was a very sensitive guy and knew his sin really well, he reasoned, how in the world will I ever measure up? So even after he became religious and entered the monastery and became a monk, the other monks, they're complaining because he's confessing all the time because he just thinks, I just got to get rid of all this sin. They felt like he was even making things up just to cover all his bases because he just felt like I, I got to... And so one of my other favorite Martin Luther quotes is this. He says, if I could believe that God loved me, I would stand on my head for joy. And the biggest mistake, the biggest blessing to us, but the biggest mistake the Catholic Church made is make, made Martin Luther uh, a Bible teacher. Which meant he had access to the Bible. Which meant he began seeing things in there that didn't jive with what he had been learning and what they had been teaching him. And when he saw, when he saw the beauty of justification by faith alone, I don't know if he started walking around on his head or what, but it turned his world upside down. And thankfully ours as well. I pray we'll do the same for you. God loves you. Because he is love. And if you and I love, it's because he first loved us. And if you ever doubt, if you ever doubt, because we do. We're frail. We sin. And you're sensitive souls. And you feel your sin. But then even sometimes you feel convicted that you don't feel your sin. I do that. Why aren't I more grieved about that? If you ever doubt, look to the cross. That is the ultimate proof that God loves sinners. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you were loving us from the beginning, you were loving us right now, and you loved us to the end and will love us to the very end. That your Son is with us to the even to the end of the age and for all eternal, eternity, the, the nightless day of the new heavens and the new earth, we will be rejoicing in the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain for us. So we thank you for the perfection of your sacrifice. We pray that you would accept our meager sacrifices in light of his perfection. Thank you for covering us by the grace of your son. Thank you for loving us. We do not deserve it. And yet you give it freely out of your grace. So help us to walk out of here as it were standing on our heads for joy. Because the most important and definitive and eternal thing about us has been settled by your son. Thank you that my debt is paid. My sins are tossed into the depths of the sea. And your son advocates for me. We pray all these things in his name, the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the name above all names. Amen.